0: Welcome back to another episode of Is Fits Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing Chapter 15, Negotiations. This chapter has a ton of different vignettes scattered throughout from different points of view. Kind of jumps around quite a bit, actually.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of um, Reading Between the Lions, the old PBS mm. show growing up, when they'd go, No, it's time for a side story. <laughs> Isn't that...
0: I don't, re- I've watched the show. I just don't remember it.
1: I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Either that or VeggieTales. Who knows?
0: <laughs> well, we start one of those side stories with Wintro, who is, I think, the maybe the biggest section in this. Uh, this or Kefria is probably the two biggest sections in this chapter.
1: I guess technically they're all really interwoven, except mm-hmm. for Kefria. She is a part. I don't know. Yeah, true.
0: But we jump into the scene with Torg saying that they're going to sail tomorrow. So, one last night for the Vivacia and Wintro and Kyle in port, and then they're going to head off. And Wintro, of course, is doing some sort of task, and Torg is taking great pleasure in torturing, but like in the light. I don't actually mean torturing yet sense. Right. <laughs> of uh torturing Wintro. Torture light. <laughs> yes, torture light wintro.
1: <laughs> Diet torture. <laughs>
0: He's nudging him in the back where a bruise already is and uh verbally torturing him through thoughts and things like that. And it's just Wintro uncoiling and recoiling some rope with Mild also in the room, who was the former ship's boy about the same age as Wintro, but a seasoned sailor of Probably three years on the boat, Wintro says later.
1: Right. So they are here and Tork is trying to provoke Wintro mostly unsuccessfully, but also trying to brag about himself, I guess.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of his self-importance and how good his decisions are in this.
1: Right. It's really interesting to me because I don't know what the purpose is of telling the captain's son how much better you are than his father. I mean, obviously it's not the best relationship and he clearly knows that he can do whatever he wants, but don't you think he'd be a little bit more worried about,
0: I think he was before that dinner meeting. And then after that, he's like, well, it doesn't matter.
1: But like, sure for torturing him, but for talking crap about Kyle,
0: For the same, I think, yeah.
1: I don't know. But anyway, we have Torg explaining that as they're leaving tomorrow, it'll be the last time they see Bingtown in a while because they have a few stops to make before Chalced, and then once they get to Chalced, they'll have to safely get their slaves back.
0: Yep, go to Jamalia and then get their slaves and then head back.
1: Right, and one of the big things is that... They have to stop at a few ports at three different ports before reaching the slave trade because Kyle is going to try to get rid of the comfort nuts, which if you remember, Althea brought up. And I believe the very first chapter we had with her that comfort nuts was a really bad financial decision to buy because it wasn't the right season or they just don't ship well. It was
0: something about them. I don't think it was the specifically the one where they like spoil or whatever. But it's No, something that was that, the egg. <laughs> yeah, it was something about <laughs> it's not know, the right time. bragging about them, like or not bragging, but ragging on Kyle saying
1: his decisions suck. Right. And it seems like she was right. And Torg also knew he would not do well to buy this. Well, he says he
0: would have known. He right. says I could have told him they wouldn't sell in Bingtown, but then no one asked me. Torg rolled his shoulders and grinned in self-satisfaction. He seemed to think that his captain's poor decision proved that Torg was a wiser man. Winchro saw no such connection. So he literally didn't say anything, but in his mind, I could have told him that they were a bad decision.
1: Right, right. Which, I guess, to your point, means maybe he didn't actually know, but now he can pretend as though he did. Yeah. But maybe he did, I don't know. It kind of feels like... Kyle is not that good of a captain, which I will get into much later in Kefri's chapter. But here we have Torg, who is kind of undermining the captain's authority. But the interesting thing is it's not just to Wintrow. It's also to Mild, who is an original part of the crew. And I think that's a really interesting tactic (laughs) to (laughs) badmouth the captain that nobody likes to somebody who's an original. yeah.
0: I don't think Torg is trying to make it a tactic, though. I think he's just what Wintro and Mild make him out to be, which is a stupid bully. Fair. He is the power around there. So he's just saying, like, I'm the best. And without somebody higher up in the ranks than him around him, he's just going to bash everybody to make himself seem better.
1: Right. And, and
0: he does that again when he's talking about Jamalia. Right. About the slave trade says, well, that's what I look forward to, especially as he'll be listening to my advice once we reach D'Amelia. That's a market I know. Yeah, I know prime slave flesh when I see it and I'll be holding out for the best. So he really has a very high opinion of himself and his knowledge of the slave trade.
1: Right. And it's really gross how excited he is to trade in people. Yes. He like very clearly is Uh, getting.
0: No, cargo. Excuse me. <laughs> no, it's people.
1: <laughs> For but, Torg,
0: I mean, like it's, yes, there's to, definitely not people. There's I don't
1: as... know. I think he sees them as people. They're just people below him Maybe. because he talks about. He doesn't really call them cargo, which I thought was really interesting. He just calls them slaves. I yeah. don't know. I mean, not I guess what is worse, you know, name wise, but. It's just really interesting to me, but I guess it makes sense knowing who Torg is that he likes to feel like he is above people and who better to feel above than someone who is literally trapped and at your mercy. So, ugh. but he does make the the snide comment that he might be able to pick out a few skinny girls for Wintro if he'd like. And asks, wouldn't that be nice? To which Wintrow has to respond. He taught, We t- get a little hint at what life has been like for Wintrow these last few weeks. Because he talks about how if you don't answer a question on board, that's when you get hurt. You will be kicked or beaten or stood on. And thankfully that hasn't broken Wintrow's spirit quite yet. Because he responds... I think that slavery is immoral and illegal and that it isn't appropriate for us to be discussing the captain's plans. And I don't know. I feel like that's pretty brave. Everybody on the ship tries to act like he is this like sniveling little coward boy. But he does say what he wants to say. He never shies away from saying something, even if he knows it's going to make somebody mad. And I feel like that's bravery. True,
0: it is. It's just nothing that sailors respect or know because why would you talk back? Because <laughs> you're just going to get beaten or whatever, right? That just shows you're kind of stupid, according to sailors. Right. But that's what Wintrow knows. He doesn't want to do, you know, take action. He talks out things. So Torg, Torg nudges him hev- uh, painfully with his heavy boot and says, oh, getting a bit snippy, are we? No, sir, Wintrow answered reflexively. It was getting easier sometimes to be simply subservient. When his father had first given him over to this brute, he had tried to speak to the man as if he had had a mind. He had rapidly learned that any words Torg didn't understand he interpreted as mockery, and that explanations were only seen as feeble excuses. The less said, the fewer bruises. Even if if it meant agreeing with statements he normally disagreed with. He tried not to see it as an eroding of his dignity and ethics. Survival, he told himself. It was simple survival until he could get away. And then he dares to ask a question of what ports are they stopping in? Because he's thinking of if they're close to the Marrows, where his monastery is from. Doesn't matter where. He will walk off the ship and walk to his monastery. Doesn't matter how far it is because he knows that area-ish, you know. And Torg, he realizes, baited him into asking that question.
1: Right. Which, to be fair, I still don't understand how that was a bait in any way. I guess just because he said they were leaving.
0: Well, he says they're leaving. We have seven stops before Jamalia. The first three are in Chelsea. He doesn't mention the other four stops. And the Marrows is in between them and Jamalia. Uh So this makes, you know, Winter will be like, oh, maybe one of those stops is in a place that I know or I can get to my monastery from. So... Him asking that of Torg means Torg knows what he's thinking. (laughs) And Torg responds with delight, vicious delight, according to Wintrow. Nowhere near, Maro, if you want to get back to your priesting, boy, you're going to have to swim. The second mate laughed aloud, and Wintrow saw how he had been set up to ask that question. It disturbed him that even Torg's slow wit could know so clearly where his heart was. Did he dream on it too much? Did it show in his every action? He had begun to think it was the only way for him to stay sane. He constantly planned ways to slip away from the ship, but every night they kind of locked him in his his room because he didn't have patience, and he laments that when he first got on the ship, and he was very clumsy in his attempts to get away to begin with. And now he is watched constantly.
1: Right, as a repercussion. But I do want to say that I think it's really interesting how we see kind of the progression of what is Wintro now versus when he first got on, there's a lot less hope. It's a lot more dreary. There's a lot more questioning, which there was already starting to be some questioning of how do I stay as a monk? If I, or as a priest, if I'm here with these people. Right. And there's not, not, there hasn't been any learning to, Appreciate the people around him. I think he's still putting himself as other to the point where it's becoming detrimental to his reputation on ship and also just how he's feeling, I think. But we do get to see that Torg. I mean, I guess it's as if we didn't know Torg is this very simple minded creature and seeing that. Wintro has learned just to give him what he wants at the expense of his own self, I think is really interesting.
0: Yeah. But Wintrow also sees it as an eroding of his self and he's trying not to think of it as an eroding of his ethics or anything like that because he's so, he lives in such a cerebral world. It's like, I must stick by my ethics no matter what there's no sway in either. I don't know. It's just so rigid. Right. And this is, again, I think what Berendal was kind of hinting at of, you're not out in the real world, buddy. <laughs> don't don't look down on people.
1: <laughs> right. Definitely. And there's
0: because there's a real world that have different consequences than just thinking about theory.
1: And the world isn't so black and white. Sure it seems yeah. black and white when you're looking at a situation from the safety of a place where everyone can agree with you, where you have kind of an echo chamber, but if you go into a new environment, you never know. How that actually plays comes into play unless you experience it. Yep. And Wintro's definitely experiencing it. And I do feel bad for him because I feel like it's a lot to deal with. And sure, parts of his, this monologue of his come through, and it kind of feels like he's still a spoiled brat and very much somebody who sees himself as holier than thou. but I think in his mind, he just hasn't quite realized that yet, that he's in his own way, a Torg, not obviously with cruelty, but he does kind of talk down to others.
0: He comes to some sort of self-realization in this chapter, but just not fully yet. Right. You know, he's he's getting there slowly. So Torg leaves Mild in charge as the nanny of Wintrow and walks away. They both watch him walk away until he is out of earshot where Mild speaks up and says, Someone will kill him someday and tip him over the side. and No one will be the wiser. The young sailor's hands never paused in their work as he imparted this information to Wintrow. Maybe it will be me, he added pleasantly. The youth's calm advocation of murder chilled Wintrow. Much as he disliked Torg, as difficult as it was for him not to hate the man, he had never considered killing him that Mild had was disconcerting. Don't let someone like Torg distort your life and focus, he suggested quietly. Even to think of killing for the sake of vengeance bends the spirit. We cannot know why Sa permits such men as Torg to have power over others, but we can deny him the power to distort our spirits. Yield him obedience where we must, but do not, I didn't ask for a sermon, Mild protested irritably. He flung down the piece of line he'd been working on in disgust. Who do you think you are? Why should you be telling me how to live or think? Don't you ever just talk? Try it sometime. Just say out loud. I'd really love to kill that dog-pronging bastard. You'd be surprised what a relief it is. He turned his face away from Wintro and spoke aloud in an apparent aside to the mast. Dung, you try to talk to him like he's a person. He acts like you're on your knees begging his advice. Wintro felt a moment of outrage, followed by a rush of embarrassment. I didn't mean it like that, he started to say. He didn't think he was any better than mild, but the lie died on on his lips. He forced himself to speak the truth. No, I never talk without thinking first. I've been schooled to avoid careless words. And in the monastery, if we see or hear someone putting himself on a destructive path, then we speak out to each other. But to help each other, not to, well, you're not in a monastery anymore, you're here. When are you going to get that through your thick head and start acting like a sailor? You know, it's painful to watch you let them push you around. Get some gumption and stand up to to them instead of preaching Saul all the time. Take a swing at Torg. Sure, you'll get a beating for it, but Torg is a bigger coward than you are. If he thinks there's even a chance you're going to lay for him with a Marline spark, he'll back off or back off of you. Don't you see that? He tried for dignity. If he makes me behave like he does, then he's truly one. Don't you see that? So they get into this argument of Wintro has in his mind his ethics and his his way of living is on the line of giving in to anything that the sailors do or you know, playing into their lifestyle or trying to fit in is a complete breaking of his moral code. And it's just it just doesn't quite line up. It's just too hardline. It's too rigid. Like you said before, it's too black and white of a world that Wintro lives in.
1: Right. And I think it really goes back to the fact that Wintro is the other here, that there's this sort of way that he perceives the world and bearing that he has that is not true for the sailors. And, on some fundament, a fundamental level, they disagree and cannot really understand each other's sides, I think. And here we have Mild, who is trying to reach out to Wintrow, who feels bad for this kid who is getting beat uh, beat up and pushed around and wants to help. And I think that's really interesting that that is a sign of compassion that is a genteelness that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a ship hand. And he's trying to reach out to this kid who's his age and be friendly and treat him normal. And Wintro's turning it into a sermon.
0: Be super annoying.
1: It's so annoying. And it's, it's kind of like whenever you go to a friend or a partner and you are complaining about your day and instead of taking your side, they, try to show that like, well, maybe they did it for this reason and it's okay. Or they try to give you like a way out of it. And it's like, no, I don't care. I just want to tell you about my bad day. I don't want to, (laughs) I don't need to know, need to think about their side of things. Like, obviously there's a time and place for that. And right now is not it. And it's really interesting to see Wintro realize that he is kind of struggling with this. He is not as socially adept as he maybe thought he was.
0: Yeah, definitely. And he kind of has that realization a little bit later in this chapter, too, that he just doesn't really know how to make friends.
1: Right. He doesn't know how to act around people his own age. Yeah, He's used to the monks and the priests. I guess they're not monks. They're priests. Priests, yeah. Yeah.
0: So this conversation continues on a little bit, going into an instance where Torg put, stole uh, Wintrow's shirt and put it up on the mast as a cruel prank, but a prank nonetheless. And Wintrow refused to go after it, refused to get it. And Mild brings that up and says that, you know, you should have known that you'd have to go get it yourself, so you should have just done it instead of waiting until you were forced to do it. That made you lose to him twice, don't you see? And Wintrow still is coming back with the holier-than-thou rhetoric of, I don't see how I lost it all. It was a cruel joke, not worthy of men, which makes Mild even a bit angrier there. And he points out, that's what you do that I hate. You know what I mean, but you try to talk about it in a whole different way. It isn't about what is worthy of men. Here and now, it's about you and Torg. The only way you could have won that round was pretending that you didn't give a damn, that climbing the mast to get your shirt back wasn't anything. Instead, you got Sunbird sitting around acting too holy to go get your shirt. Don't you get it at all? The worst was him forcing you to climb the mast ahead of him. That was when you really lost the whole crew thinks you've got no spine now that you're a coward. mild shook his head in disgust. It's bad enough you look like a little kid. Do you have to act like one all the time it's It's probably just a fairly normal hazing kind of thing, you know, right. Play pranks on the on the um the new kid, basically right. If he goes along with it, has a good sense of humor, you'll fit in, you know.
1: Right. And I mean, obviously, we know that this isn't just little bits of hazing. There is more underneath that. But this instinct kind of does just sound like a little bit of hazing. And sure, it's not great to bully people. And I don't agree with hazing. But in this instance, it would have just been really easy for him to just go up the pole, grab it and not say a word. I feel like that would have done exactly what he was doing anyway. Of saying, I of saying, oh, I was trying to ignore it because it wasn't worthy of men to play pranks like that. It's mean and immoral. Well, sure, but you don't have to just ignore it and make people make you do things. Then,
0: right? Yeah, and, my uh, excuse me, Mild is pointing out to Wintrow that he's not a priest anymore.
1: <laughs> right, things are different here. And even if he was a priest, how is it not the priestly way to just to go up and get it yourself? Right. And I think that's really interesting to have that sort of introspection of here's my values and why everybody on the ship who kind of shares my values is going to look down on you. And Wintro is almost too defensive to get off hit a good enough reason to why he didn't follow those. Right. And I get it. And it makes me go back to the phrase in the first trilogy of you can't measure your wheat by someone else's bushel. (laughs) Right. Because everybody plays by a different set of rules, right? Like your morals and values are different to the person next to you. So you can't expect people to share that and to operate in that way just because you do. And I don't think that Wintrow has quite grasped that.
0: No. And I mean, going to the priesthood or the priest Uh, The the monastery, excuse me, when he was young, definitely good for his, you know, critical thinking skills in some aspects, his theoretical thinking skills, his maturity, his emotional maturity, but very bad for his socialization. He, He literally doesn't know how to socially interact with anybody his age. And I kind of equated this scene with, you know, you have a group of friends, you might poke fun at one another or rib each other and then you all laugh and you're kind of closer together if you did that with Wintrow he'd be like no my shirt fits okay please don't make fun of me that's not worthy of men I thought we were supposed to be friends it'd be so like robotic and weird and it just is not endearing any sort of closeness to the the crew at all
1: right and I think I think part of that's probably because most of his experience has been to train him to be a priest. And as a priest, there are probably a lot of situations where you're supposed to be a guider or be there for people to guide them onto the right path of saw. But he isn't a priest and that isn't, that's what he's not getting. And sure he wants to be a priest, but he wasn't even a priest when, when he was there, he wasn't there yet. And for him to act as though he needs to live exactly the way a priest is, it is a little bit rough. Like,
0: And but, preach still. And,
1: <laughs> yes. And he needs to preach to everyone. It just, I do feel bad because obviously when would he have learned to not act that way? <laughs> but I don't know. I just wish he was a little bit more normal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Miles' words do make him think though. He has some self-reflection here that they they rattle him a bit. And he realizes, yeah, he's not anymore in that world. He is with the sailors now, and and maybe trying to fit in might be a good idea. And he's kind of thinking back to the monastery, and he's thinking about differences that people had, but you know the monastery kicked out anybody who had any sort of bullying tendencies or anything like that, no teasing each other after the first few days. It's just not something that exists in the monastery, so he is in a different place, but he misses that he's he still misses the monastery, obviously he still wants to go back. that's the place he grew up. that's the place he loves right now, but he forces the pain away from missing the monastery. Says to himself, "No tears aboard this ship. No sense in letting anyone see what they could only view as a weakness." In his own way, Mild was right. He was trapped aboard the Vivacia either until he could make his escape or until his fifteenth birthday. What would Berendal have counselled him? Why, to make the best of his time here. If sailor he must be, then he were wiser, Then he were wiser to learn it swiftly. And if he were forced to be a part of this crew for however long it would be, then he must begin to form alliances at least. And then he says it would help if he knew the vaguest sense of idea to how to make friends with somebody his age.
1: Right. And I do feel for Wintrow here. He is struggling. He's still young and he does, I think, on some level want to fit in. But he, I think, is also a little scared to leave any part of the monastery behind and right. who he is because without it, then what? Does that mean he never goes back? And so I totally get that. And I think it's a real fear and very valid to feel that way. And it is very young to hold on to something tighter instead of realizing that you kind of have to go with the flow a little bit more and life will be a little bit easier. Obviously, there's a lot of changes happening and that will affect it. But I don't know. We just have winter here. I feel so bad. And I mean, even through this, I still see the... Good of him going there and the lessons that he is taking to heart, which is good. Like he makes mention that people make fun of him here about how he, about how he looks like mild just did it. He just said, you look like a boy? Do you have to act like one too? And he talks about how he sees nothing wrong with his slight frame and his thin build and nobody in the monastery would either. And even if he had a problem with it, it's not like he can do anything to fix it. So Why should he worry? He'll grow in his own way in his own time. And that's a great lesson to take away, as is having patience and knowing not to treat other people with rudeness or meanness. But he just takes it one step too far, and that others him. (laughs) And keeps him from learning to be a little bit more human, I think.
0: (laughs) And so Vivacia chimes in here and says... I thought your words had merit, and Intro's in a spiral, so he immediately thinks, Wonderful. A soulless wooden ship, animated by a force that might or might not be of Saw, found his words inspiring. Almost as soon as he had the unworthy thought, Wintro squelched it, but not before he sensed a vibration of pain from the ship. Had he not just been telling himself he needed allies? And here he was viciously turning on the only true ally he had. And he says... I'm sorry. It is the nature of humans that we tend to pass our pain along, as if we could get rid of it by inflicting an equal hurt on someone else. I've seen it before, Vavasha agreed listlessly, and you are not alone in your bitterness. The whole crew is in turmoil. Scarcely a soul aboard feels content with his lot. He nodded to her observation. There has been too much change too fast. Too many men dismissed. Others put on lesser wage because of their age. Too many new hands aboard, trying to discover where they fit in the order of things. It will take time before they feel they are all part of the same crew. If ever, Vivacious said with small hope. There is Vestrit's old crew, and Kyle's men, and the new hands. So they seem to think of themselves, and so they behave. I feel divided against myself. It is hard to trust hard to relax and give control to the captain. She hesitated on the title as if she herself did not yet fully recognize Kyle in that position. So Wintrow still has his thoughts about what the vivacia is and if it's holy or unholy or even if vivacia should exist at all. But he's trying to squelch those, sh- th- those thoughts a little bit because he thinks it's unfair <laughs> right. to her. But also they have uh, we have an update on how the crew is being formed here We have the old hands, Vestrit's old crew. But some of the people that we have heard about before from Brashen's point of view or Althea's point of view of sailors usually too old to stick on other crews being kept on at the same pay rate because they've been there forever. They know uh, and Ephraim Vestrit knew the value of a veteran sailor who knew everything on board. Right. Some of them are getting their pay decreased and we find out later some of them are walking away or getting fired. Right. And then there are Kyle's men who are getting on Torg and Gantry and I'm sure a few other sailors there. And then the new hires to replace all the other ones that they couldn't find. And it's just very scattered to Vivacia. There is not a, she doesn't respect the captain first of all. And secondly, the crew doesn't, Act like a crew right now.
1: Right. And I think it's really interesting to hear vivacious point of view because then we can see that she's probably more sensitive to humans in general than you would maybe believe on the surface. That even though she has that deep connection with the Vestrit family and the Vestrit bloodline, there's still a deeper connection to them. She can converse with them easier. She is talking directly to them in their minds and can read their minds and can follow them wherever they are on ship. But she still does kind of have some sort of knowledge of how everyone is feeling and how they're thinking. Maybe not exactly as strongly as Wintrow, but I think it's really interesting to think about how much knowledge she probably has of people's inner workings that they probably don't know she has of them. Right.
0: Yeah. Wintrow specifically uh, thinks of a story agreeing with her, thinks of a story of an old sailor who was pretty much getting kicked off the ship, but Captain Kyle wanted his gold earring back in the likeness of Vivacia that Ephron Vestrit had given him. As was talked about before, often sailors have a little trinket to show the loyalty to the ship. And the old sailor refused to give it to Kyle and threw it into the ocean. But Vivacia says he didn't throw it into the ocean, actually. Came back later and gave it to me. Wintrow, of course, was uh, very curious about this, <laughs> this new knowledge because he didn't hear anything about this. And she says that he came back later that night and gave it to me. He said we had been, been so long together, if he could not die aboard my decks, he wished me to have at least a token of his years. Wintrow felt himself suddenly deeply moved. The old sailor had given back to the ship what was surely a valuable piece of jewelry as gold alone, given it freely What did you do with it? She looks uncomfortable for a moment. And she says that she didn't really know what to do, but the old sailor said that sometimes it's common for live ships to swallow those certain trinkets. Not commonly, but with tokens that are of great significance. She smiled at Winchro's astonished look. So I did. It was not hard, although it felt strange. And I am aware of it in an odd way. But you know... It felt like the right thing to do. I am sure it was, Wintro replied, and wondered why Huth was so sure. So it's a little bit of maybe his vestrant blood coming out, mm-hmm. being like, yeah, that
1: sounds like the right thing. Or dragon glamour, <laughs> convincing him that what she's saying is correct. Oh, sure. <laughs> maybe it is the vestrid blood, who knows. But it is interesting to hear this little aside of a little tradition that live ships have to swallow things that are
0: of great importance, of great
1: importance. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because we know obviously live ships aren't actually living creatures in the same way, like a normal being would be. So they don't have to eat to survive. So that just means that there's like, it's in the wood now, I guess part of me imagines like, there's a hole carved down her throat and then she has like a little, little stomach. <laughs> like there's
0: a, just rattling a down. Hole, in there. Yeah.
1: There's like a carved little space in her belly behind the carving for food to go or little trinkets, I guess <laughs> if it's a custom, but probably not. But then, you know, again, I think about logistics of, so how does that work? Then?
0: <laughs> well, we move on to Althea's point of view. Also with Vivacia, and Wintro. She is on the docks. She is in the shadows trying to speak to Wintro here. We learn that gradually she has a plan in her mind and she must speak and divulge part of that plan to Wintro because she is part, or excuse me, Wintro is part of that plan. She says, what else did she have? Only Kyle's impulsive oath and her nephew's sense of fair play. So she's very, very hopeful, but also scared to talk to Wintro because she doesn't know Wintro that well. And she starts to pray to Sa by setting her hand on Vivacious Hull, but feels Vivacious response, really.
1: She also talks a little bit about how she isn't a very religious person that she hasn't prayed to saw a whole bunch. And so trying to do so feels foreign to her. And by the end, she's not even really sure if saw would listen anyway. She calls saw the mother of all and wonders if the mother of all would really hear her prayer from somebody who normally ignores her. Yeah. So, so it's really interesting to have this like weird internal platitude of, well, I don't even know if God is real, but (laughs) I guess it's better than nothing. And then feeling the response from vivatia realizes maybe, maybe what's more real to her is the blessing of the vivatia.
0: Yeah. says maybe like most sailors, she knew she believed more in her ship than in any divine providence. And Vivesha is clued into this plan as well. And Wintro is brought up to the figurehead for his designated time to talk to Vivesha, But he is extremely tired. So Althea is waiting there and she's thinking, you know, here she was about to divulge all her plans to Wintro and all on the basis of a single look exchanged with him. For a brief moment, she had seen her father's sense of honor in the the boy's eyes. Now she was going to stake everything on her belief in him. Of course, Torg is there to drop him off, saying, remember, I'm watching you, don't do anything. And says, answer me, boy. And Wintro points out, you didn't ask me a question. On the docs below, Althea gave the boy marks for guts, if not wisdom. So that's the thing that you were talking about before, too, that he is... Courageous in talking back or saying things like that. It's not necessarily rude, but just talking back when you don't need to.
1: Right. I I don't know. I think it's really interesting that in this little tidbit of the chapter, we kind of see Althea gain respect for Wintrow, which is really at odds considering the whole crew has kind of lost respect. Right. If they even had any to begin with for Wintrow. And so it's this really interesting thing where Althea is kind of seeing to the heart of him and who he is deep down. And I think maybe she gets that from her father because it kind of seems like Efren Vestret was a guy who didn't really look at what others were saying about a person. He just looked at who they were on the inside right? and based things off of that, which I think is really sweet. And I also think it does it's a good character marker for Althea. I think it's good of her not to think little of him because he's scrawny. I don't think we ever hear Althea badmouth Wintros looks. Is she
0: not badmouth, but I think just in passing, like, oh, he's pretty short or something like that, you know?
1: Right. But I don't think she ever makes a point of like, oh, he would be a horrible sailor because right. of it. Mm-hmm. She never once looks at him and thinks that he would be less because of the way he looks. And I think that's also something that's really important about her is that she hasn't let the fact that she is able to have privilege that others aren't go to her head in the way that she is judging others the way they would judge her. Right. And I think that's really cool.
0: Yeah, definitely. So Torg drops him off there and Wintro says to Vivacia, I'm too tired to really talk tonight. Sorry, I've been worked to the bone. And Vivacia is like, too tired to listen because Althea's waiting for you to speak to you. Like my aunt Althea, the boy asked in surprise saw his head appear over the railing above her, and she stepped silently from the shadows to look up at him. "'Everyone says you just disappeared,' he observed to her quietly. "'Yes, I did,' she admitted to him. She took a deep breath and her first risk. "'Wintro, if I speak frankly with you of what I plan to do, can you keep those plans a secret?' He asked her a priest's question in reply. "'Are you planning on doing something... wrong?' She almost laughed at his tone, no, i'm going to kill I'm not going to kill your father or anything so rash as that. She hesitated, trying to measure what little she knew of the boy. Ivesha had assured her that he was trustworthy. She hoped the young ship was right. I'm going to try to outmaneuver him though, but it won't work if he knows of my, of my plans. so I'm going to ask you to keep my secret basically, then he continues like, "Why are you telling me Secrets only best kept by one person." And that's kind of the whole point of why she's there. She knows that that's true, but her plan hinges on Wintrow agreeing to say in front of the council that Kyle promised or swore to Saw that she would give or that he would give the ship to Elthea, with a couple, you know, stipulations on that. And she says, because you are so crucial to my plans, without your promise to aid me, there is no sense in my even acting at all. The boy was silent for a time. What you saw that day when he hit me, it might make you think I hate him or wish his downfall. I don't. I just want him to keep his promise. That's exactly what I want also, Althea replied quickly. And... Again, she asks Wintro to keep the promise, and he thinks. To Althea, it takes oh, quite a while, and wonders if all priests were so cautious about everything. And finally he says, "I will keep your secret." And she liked that about him. no vows or oaths, just the simple offering of his word. Through the palm of her hand, she felt the vivacia respond with pleasure to her approval of him. Strange that that should matter to the ship. Thank you, she said quietly. She took her courage in both hands and hoped he would not think she was a fool. And then continues on asking if he remembers that day and if he would like speak that or knows exactly what he said, what
1: Kyle said. Right. So I think it's really interesting to have this moment in Althea's mind. It's interesting to see Wintro from her perspective. She does kind of say he's very priest-like in everything he does, which I think is really interesting because in my reading of this, it doesn't feel like that's a diss. It doesn't feel like she's trying to put him down for acting like a priest. That's just who he is and who he said he wants to be, and so that's who he like who she sees him ha- as. And I think that's really interesting that she's giving him that much respect. Kyle's son is getting that much respect from Althea, but I think it's really interesting, too, that she doesn't let the fact that he's Kyle's son stop her from giving him a chance. It
0: almost did, except for that look that she recognized her father's, you know, values in. Right. And obviously before that time, she did specifically think this was Kyle's son. Right.
1: No, she would have definitely written him off. But I don't know. I just I really appreciate that Althea in this moment. There is so much that she could be making fun of Wintro for. And sure, she almost laughs at the way that he says something. But she doesn't then be like, what an idiot. Why would you think like that? She just is like, oh, that's so, it's kind of funny. Almost funny how serious he's taking this. And as we just heard, Wintro likes to think before he speaks. That's what he was trained to do. And so that's why it takes him time to find his words. And Althea, sure, she feels impatient, but she just is like, I wonder if all priests are like this. It's, <laughs> And it's not Because she thinks he's slow or too afraid to speak or too dumb. It just is, all right, he's got to take his time. I don't know. I really appreciate this interaction between the two of them. Yeah. Because as much as I still think Althea has a long way to go and there's a lot of growth left for both of these characters, I do like seeing the side of Althea where she is giving someone respect despite some things that might make it seem like to the outside world, he does not deserve it and trying to find that common ground. I don't know.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: But Althea must ask. So she, now that Wintrow has agreed to say that he would not tell her plan to his father, she asks, do you remember what he said about saw or promising to saw that I could have the boat basically and Wintrow agrees that he did. He does remember it and he could say that he did, or he doesn't agree to saying anything, but he does agree that he has heard it. And she asks, would you swear to Saw that he did it? And he comes back with no. And in that instance, we have all this doubt and despair come into Althea and she's like, I should have known better. You can't trust him. I thought this is a fair play would win out. But Windrow takes a pause and says priests don't swear to saw but i would say that i had heard it because it's the truth and i think that's really interesting too
0: <laughs> and we get a little roller coaster of emotion where althea the, her heart then soars it would be enough it would have to be enough she's trying to convince herself that very similar situations that Wintro and Althea are in because Wintro is holding on to the hope that he's going to return to his monastery. That's the only thing keeping him sane, he says. And now we have this section where Althea is holding on to hope that if she can get more people to agree that Kyle said these words, she can definitely get the vivacious back. She's holding on to that hope. That is her, her one goal now. So... She kind of presses him a little bit, saying, You would give your word as a man, then, as to what he said. And Wintra says, Yeah, of course, that's the truth, but I don't think it would do you any good. If my father will not keep his word to Sa to give me up to the priesthood, why should he keep his word on an angrily sworn oath? After all, this ship is worth much more to him than I am. I am sorry to say this to you, Althea, but I think your hopes of regaining your ship that way are groundless. You let me worry about that, she said in a shaky voice. Relief was flowing through her. And Althea thinks she, she found at least one witness, which is great. She doesn't need to clue him in on the traitors' counsel and what sort of power that they might hold. And she would burden him with no more of that. As long as I know you will vouch for the truth that your father spoke those words, I have hope. He received those words in silence. For a time, Althea just stood there, her hands on her silent ship. She could almost feel the boy through the ship, his desolation and loneliness. "'We sail tomorrow,' he said finally. There was no joy in his voice. "'I envy you,' Althea told him. "'I know you do. I wish we could change places.' "'I wish it were that simple,' Althea tried to set aside her jealousy. "'Wintro, trust the ship. She'll take care of you. And you take good care of her. I'm counting on both of you to watch out for each other.' She recognizes that she has that doting relative tone to her voice that she hated when she was a kid. Pushes that aside and then continues on saying, I believe you'll grow to love this life and ship. It's in your blood. And then says, when I take control of the ship, I will make sure that there's always a place on board for you if you would like
1: it. She doesn't say take control of my ship. She says our ship. I think that's really big.
0: Yeah, if you do and you are true to our ship. When I take her over, I'll make sure there's always a place for you aboard her. Yep.
1: That is my promise. And I think that's really big of Althea. Althea's really struggling with the idea that Wintro's kind of taken over her spot. Not in whole because she doesn't want to be ship's boy. She wants to be captain. But in a lot of ways, well, like at least. The in,
0: important part of like the bond with Vivacia and yes, just being on board.
1: <laughs> yes. Wintro's taken over. And even still, she's gracious enough to say, you know, like, hey, I'm pretty sure you're going to learn to love this. And if you do, if that is the case, I promise that I won't chase you off. Just because you know that I want to be on this ship and I want to be captain, that doesn't mean that you won't have a place here. And I think that's a really nice olive branch that she's offering. Obviously, she clearly doesn't know her nephew, well, because that's the last thing that he wants. Which and she
0: says, I don't we'll make you keep that promise.
1: Right. But I think it's still a nice gesture from Althea because that is a very big kindness on her her end. Right. To yeah. say, it's our ship and you clearly have a bond and I won't get in the way of that. I don't know. I just, as much crap as we give Althea for being really immature, I think that is pretty mature of her in this moment.
0: Torg kind of hears Wintrow talking, maybe not to the ship, and walks up there and demands, you know, asks, who who is he talking to? Althea, of course, is fretting a little bit because he's a priest and he's probably not going to lie at all. But Vivacia chimes in and says, it's my hour with the boy. And then Torg is like, are you talking to somebody on the dock? And he leans over to look and Vivacia says, why don't you haul your fat ass down there and see? she asked nastily. Althea clearly heard Wintrow's gasp of astonishment. It was all she could do to keep from laughing. She sounded just like their cocky ship's boy, mild, in one of his bolder moods. Yeah, well, maybe I'll just do that. Don't trip in the dark, the vivatia warned him sweetly. It would be a shame if you went overboard and drowned right here by the dock. The live ship's peaceful rocking suddenly increased by the tiniest of increments. And in that moment, her adolescent taunting of the man took on a darker edge that stood the hair up on the back of Althea's neck. You devil ship, Torg hissed at her. You don't scare me. I'm seeing who's down there. And Vivesha, of course, says go now to Althea. And Althea says, good luck. My heart sails with you. I'm heading out. And she sends a true prayer up to Sa. Keep them both safe, especially from themselves, she said under her breath. But that is the second time the Vivesha in... Althea's notice Mm -hmm. has had dark, violent thoughts about some of the crew.
1: Right. Which is really interesting because as far as we know, the three Vestrates that she has inherited the life memories of were not violent people. At least Efren wasn't. And there's no talk on whether or not his parents and grandparents were. But I assume if he was raised by them, he wouldn't be or they wouldn't be. But Althea tries to brush this over. She's there is no deep thought of what this could mean. There's that pit in her stomach of like, oh, no, this is not so funny anymore. This is scary. And then it's time to be off. There's no time to think, I guess. I don't know. It's definitely a scary thought
0: recurring theme now
1: yeah maybe that's just who she is mean to people she doesn't like (laughs) which isn't the worst thing (laughs) but it is a little scary because she doesn't i'm sure althea is more thinking she doesn't want her to get the reputation of the pariah
0: yeah which is exactly what she messaged to her mother in a couple chapters ago in that letter right So this next section is Ronica preparing the kitchen for a guest. We move on from Althea and head to the Vestret household, where she has sent everybody away for the night. It is the night right now, and she thinks on Rach a little bit here because she's thinking of she sent she gave the, the servants a night off, and that Kefria had Rach teaching Malta to dance now. And how to hold a fan, and even how to discourse with men. Ronica found it appalling that she would entrust her daughter's instruction in such a things to a relative stranger, but understood also that lately Kefri and Malta had not been on the best of terms. But rage comes to mind because she's been very, very clingy recently, uh, very grateful to Ronica, and always waiting around the corner to see if Ronica needs to do needs anything, basically. And a few times, I guess, Devad has kind of hinted that he would like rach back but every single time kefria had thanked him so profusely for all of rach's help all the while exclaiming that she didn't know what how she'd get along without her that there had been no gracious way for deva to simply ask for her back and ronica wondered how long that tactic would suffice and what would she do when it did not buy the girl become a slave owner herself the thought made her squeamish She's preparing, she give the night off. And then we learn that Rach is giving lessons to Malta.
1: Right. I also think it's really interesting that we get a view into another self-centered vestrit. And um, that Ronica is talking about the Malta and Kefria feud going on at the moment and how she can't believe her daughter wouldn't just teach Malta herself, but also She doesn't want to know about what's going on. She has more important things to worry about. And I think that's just so dismissive. And it also comes to bite her in the butt because what Malta ends up doing ultimately does affect her and the family. (laughs) And maybe if she cared a little bit more now, it never would have happened.
0: True. But at some point you had to kind of trust your daughter to have her own daughter. Well, right. (laughs) But I just,
1: it's just such an interesting relationship Where she's like, oh, hopefully my daughter doesn't annoyingly like complain to me about her problems. I just feel so not motherly. I really did
0: not feel that attitude at all from that passage. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. I felt this like really weird sense of like, oh, thankfully I don't have to listen to that complaint because I don't really care. It's nothing doesn't mean anything to me, which is almost at odds to me with how I see her because she's so family oriented and so like family means everything and we should try to get along but then the second there's a rift in her family she's like well that's their problem i don't want to hear about it fix it on your own
0: i i don't know i just did not get that vibe from this at all i i just get that ronica is very not that she isn't a family person like you're saying Mm because she's very about like keeping the whole family together but she's not a family oriented person i, <laughs> I wouldn't guess. say she's not incredibly warm as elthea even describes that she's not a kind of hug and nice to see you kind of person That's right fair, she's she's a matriarch and in control kind of person yeah and i read this passage from that perspective of like she's trying to fix the whole direction of the family fix problems that arose from the decisions that she and ephron made and she doesn't really have time or want to get involved with another problem that she might see or somebody might want to help her uh, or have her help fix. She's like, I don't need to get involved with more stuff. So if that remains between them, all the better.
1: I guess. I don't know.
0: So I, it's just different, different yeah. takes on the same passage I thought was interesting.
1: Yeah, true. But there is this underlying theme of a lot is going on for Veronica right now. Yeah. There's a lot happening and she's kind of hit her limit of caring. <laughs> she, as much as she does care, I think there's still just a limit to how much she can take to change. And with Rachel's change in demeanor, I think that's probably hard on her. She's no longer got alone time. Right. She has to worry about Rachel being there at every corner. And I'm <laughs> sure part of that is from some sort of guilt, Right. Like they still kind of do own rage. Even if it's not slavery by title, it is kind of slavery. They're not really paying her, right? Yeah, they are. Oh, they are.
0: She says specifically that she pays her.
1: Oh, okay. But yeah, I don't know. It's just. Ugh. <laughs> it probably some sort of guilt of like, well, I kind of did see it was lesser. And now I know what happened to you and that's rough. <laughs> But it is really interesting that after Rach shares her story, she feels closer to Ronica. I guess I just don't understand where that switch came from. Like, what is it about telling her story that made her?
0: Well, I think it's also them refusing to give her back to Devad and keeping her in their household. You know, I guess she's got to be thankful for that, too. Sure. So maybe finally warming up to these people aren't terrible. I'm it's been some time. So I'm getting over the shock of the absolute horrifying situation I went through and the loss that I went through right. and just kind of acclimating a little bit more. And at the end of this passage, Ronica says that she devoutly wished the woman would find some sort of life for herself. One to replace the one that her slavery had stolen from her. She asked herself Riley. So she absolutely gets the, you know, the irony or like, the misplaced thought that she has there. But I think the life that she found is trying to be of service to somebody who is giving her an okay ish life right now, which is Ronica, but Ronica doesn't see it like that. She's like, I wish she had hobbies and friends outside of me. Right. (laughs) Also, I agree with Ronica about Kefria teach Malta yourself kind of.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It's hard. Like, Kefria's whole deal is that she doesn't really like getting her hands dirty. So she makes yes. other people do stuff, which yeah. is annoying. But at the same time, if my daughter was Malta, I wouldn't want to talk to her either. So. Same. Same. <laughs> so I don't know. I get it. You can't always get along with your kids.
0: <laughs> but in the meantime, a gong sounds from outside. And Ronika takes that as a, is probably something from. I don't know. Is, it, is that timekeeping, do you think? Or is that something from the Rainwild of, like, some timer? Or is that a notice from them? Because it's still a little bit of time before there's a knock at the door after that gong.
1: Maybe, Maybe that is, like, the gong is the arrival of the ship. Maybe. Because it's yeah. in the distance, and they have to walk to a boat, a little boat. So maybe somebody on the boat has a little gong, and they just hit it.
0: My my thought was that it was a uh, that it was like a timekeeping thing for the city, but I don't know.
1: It's not really ever mentioned again. I think yeah. outside of this context, I don't think so. Maybe maybe it's timekeeping for the city, but I kind of, in my mind, I like it better if it's some sort of secret, covert signal. <laughs> Although it's not very covert, turning a gong right yeah <laughs> in town at night. So I don't know.
0: Either way, it is a signal that gets Ronica a little bit more nervous. She's pacing around. She's looking at the spread on the table, rearranging some silverware, that sort of thing. She knows a meeting is nigh.
1: I also want to say that even as a rereader, when I first started reading this section, I forgot that she was going to be meeting, who she was going to be meeting, and thought it was Althea. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I don't remember her eating dinner with Althea but I guess it makes sense that they would meet at night because I do kind of remember them meeting at night. So then I was really confused and then I remember, and then obviously as the chapter goes on, it's clearly not Althea, but it is, it could be a good trick to other people. Maybe I'm just the only one, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in the last Althea portion, she does mention that the Vivacia has said that her mother has tried to get in contact with her. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs>
0: She looks at the plates and the food that she has set out, saying that the grandness of the food was to indicate how she respected her, her guest, while secrecy and the kitchen setting reminded them both of the old agreements to both protect and defend one another. Nervously, Ronica pushed the silver spoons into minutely improved alignment. Silliness. This was not the first time that she had received a delegate from the Rainwild Traders. Twice a year since she had been married to Efren, they had come. It was only the first time she had received one since his death and the first time she had not been able to amass the full payment due. Two measures light was the gold that was due. Uh, According to Ronica, she intended to admit it pretty much straight up and not just try to like pass it off as that is the payment. It is a partial payment and she says maybe that's better than none and the Rainwild folk needed her gold far more than anything else she could offer them or so she hoped. And we get a little bit more into the deal and the old covenants and the traditions around the original traders that came to Bingtown and the Rainwild area. And a lot of that does focus on the cost and the old agreements that they had that specifically Efren's grandmother set up for the payment of the vivatia.
1: Right, which also kind of feels like a lot of money. Like how have they not paid it off if twice a year for at least three generations, they've been paying 12 gold pieces, whatever that means, not measures. Pieces, 12 yeah. gold measures. Like that is so much gold. How is that possibly that much gold over that amount of time that has never been under what they've asked? How is that not the equivalent
0: twice a year? 24 Twice. measures of gold a year
1: for how many, year, like almost a hundred years, if not more. Yeah, maybe that's so much gold. <laughs> I, like how much does this cost? Also what's a measure of gold? Yeah. Like, how much know. gold is that? I don't know. But anyway, they're short for the first time ever, which I think again, I'm going to rattle a little bell here. Um, points to the fact that Kyle isn't a very good captain because they have never not made the payment and we know Kyle had trouble selling a shipment he thought he was going to be able to sell already and now we hear that the payment is two measures short which feels like a lot i don't know but <laughs> i mean i guess it's not a it's lot one compared sixth to for their payment <laughs> yes still i don't know so maybe he's not that great of a captain
0: A knock comes at the door, and she is startled. She calls out welcome without moving to open the door. She blows out all the candles except for one to light a couple more, so there's barely any light within the room. It is dimly lit, and she nods her approval to herself at the effect and quickly steps over to open the door herself. I bid you welcome to my home. Enter and be at home also. The words were the old formality, but Ronica's voice was warm with genuine feeling. Thank you, the Rainwild woman replied. She came in, glanced about to nod her approval at the privacy and the lowered lights. She ungloved her hands, passing the soft leather garments to Ronica, and then pushed back the cowl that had sheltered her face and hair. Ronica held herself steady and met the woman's eyes with her own. She did not permit her expression to change at all. "'I have prepared refreshment for you after your long journey. "'Will you be seated at my table?' "'Most gratefully,' her companion replied. "'The two women curtsied to one another. "'I, Ronica Vestrit, of the Vestrit family of the Bingtown traders, "'make you welcome to my table and my home. "'I recall all our most ancient pledges to one another, "'Bingtown to Rainwilds, "'and also our private agreement regarding the liveship Vivacia, "'the product of both our families.' I, Colwyn Festru, of the Festru family of the Rainwild traders, accept your hospitality of home and table. I recall all our most ple- ancient pledges to one another, Rainwilds to Bingtown, and also our private agreement regarding the liveship Vivacia, the product of both our families. Both women straightened, and Cowlin gave a mock sigh of relief that the formalities were over. Ronica was privately relieved that the ceremony was a tradition. Without it, she would never have recognized Cowlin. It's a, one, a lovely table you've set, Ronica. But then, in all of the years we have met, it has never been anything else. How do you want to pronounce that name? I have been saying Colwyn.
1: Um, that's fine. I don't know. I don't... <laughs> C cool.
0: C A O L W N. Calm. Yeah, calm is a little bit more of a <laughs>
1: calm. I don't...
0: pebble in the mouth kind of thing. Callan? Calwin. I don't know.
1: Calwin. That's like adding a couple that's taking away the L and adding <laughs> something I say
0: the as... L? Calwin?
1: Calwin, I guess.
0: It's just adding an I between the W and the N.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's fair. I don't know. That's fine, Cowan.
0: It's a little bit easier to say, I think. Yes. But anyway, Calwin Festru of the Festru Traders. The family is the one that... Purchased or created by Vesha for them, and the one that they are indebted to to pay back.
1: Right. Really interestingly, when we think about the spoilers, we know the Cooper's family is technically the family who found the quote-unquote wizard wood. And I think so. Yeah, they are the one of the only families that knows the true. The the truth of the wizard wood planks? Uh
0: possibly. Right? I know it is a well kept secret, but I know that they are not the only ones who have access to them.
1: So maybe there's three families. I also had the number three in my head.
0: Maybe. I feel like I don't know. I don't know how it works really.
1: Well, either way, I was going to say it's really interesting that there's one Rainwild family who kind of owns the wood, the wizard wood. I don't know if that's true though.
0: I, I really don't know. Cause I know the, uh, they're specifically known for like those, the Cooper's family is specifically known for like the flame jewels, right? The colored jewels. And that's how they get like most of their stuff from, I know they are super involved in the wizard wood, right? but I don't know if they have full control over all the supply.
1: I guess I just assume that's why they were the richest family.
0: I'm pretty sure it's because they have like some of the richest mining area or like digging out the elderling stuff. Okay. That's what I thought at least because I thought their, their specialty was like those flame jewels.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I assume. Okay, well then never mind.
0: But if they did have full control of the wizard wood, are you thinking like that family would have to commission the Cooper's family and then they would probably owe money to the Cooper's and since it's to the Vestras, the Vestras have to pay them.
1: Yeah. That's what I was wondering it, like where the payment comes in or if it's like they're the artists. So technically the Cooper's family make, makes the like, wood, gives
0: them the wood planks or whatever. Something. Yeah.
1: And then they just like carve mm. something. I don't know. I'm not sure. Cause it doesn't seem like there's just one family of, old trader or no, No. the rainfall wild folk that go from like (laughs) trader family to trader family to eat. It's multiple different families, multiple different agreements. So I don't know. I just found that really interesting, but either way we have Ronica who says that she is genuinely, there's genuinely a sort of friendship here, a genuine bond that she is really, although that she is speaking the lines of the agreement that they have, this kind of play that they're putting on. She says it with real warmth and that she's excited to see her friend, although wouldn't recognize her friend without the,
0: the introductions
1: introductions, which I think is really weird. Is she, does she just not get to see any of the other people from the rain wilds? And so she just thinks they all look the same. Well,
0: it says that Kalwin has grown a few more um, like scaly protrusions or whatever. I don't know how they describe it, but she is visibly different. Mm. But also she was expecting to see her daughter, uh, Nellin. And she says that to Kalwin and Kalwin says, my daughter is no more. I'm sorry to hear that. Ronica's sympathy was genuine the rain wilds are hard on women not that they are easy on men to outlive your child that is bitter it is and yet nellen gifted us with 3 children before she went that will be long remembered she will be long remembered for that and long honored ronica nods slowly and we learn that to have 3 children is somewhat of a miracle because it's common to only hope for and really get only one viable child in the rain wilds.
1: And even then it's a really high likelihood that the mother will die in childbirth. So the fact that she had three is just really special.
0: Kind of settles her in getting out the tea instead of the wine and tells her yeah, I'll, I'll send the wine back with you. I remember that you prefer tea. When you drink this wine back, just remember um, Nellon for me and cel- celebrate that or whatever. And right. of course, just a friendship kind of settling in offering condolences and sympathies.
1: Right. And Callan mentions that, you know, kind of tears up and says, thank you. You know, the other Rainwild people and old traders, like, they do this because it is part of the bargain that they have made. This is part of the ceremony that they have to do. And very seldom is it ever met with a genuine kindness or compassion. And yet here we have Ronica who clearly is friends with this woman who actually cares about her and is sad for her loss. Yeah. And it's not lost on Callan.
0: Cowan says, but ever since you became a vestrate and took on the duties of the visit, you have made us feel truly welcome. How can I thank you for that? And this is when Ronica is tempted to bring up the shortage of gold, but she knows that that is not the proper thing to do. She is friends with Cowan, and she sticks by old promises and packs. And says, no thanks are needed. I give you no more than is due you, she said, and added because the words sounded cold. But ceremony or no, pact or no, I believe we would have been friends, we too. So they don't describe themselves as friends because this is a pact. This is business. This is pretty cold transactions with a very high price. But they do have genuine fondness for one another.
1: Right. I do think there is a friendship there underneath the pact. But I also think that it's really interesting that we have Veronica, before saying this nice thing, she's thinking another woman might have thought this way and another woman might have asked for more money or or asked to overlook the money in exchange, but I'm not like other women. And it just made me think about the fact that Althea is always like, I'm not like other girls and we have the OG (laughs) not like other girls in the house. Mama Vestrit. So I don't know. I just saw a lot of Althea Vestrit shining through in this. (laughs) And Ronica makes tea. Mm -hmm. She says, all right, enough of that. (laughs) Let's get tea and get to business. And part of the ceremony or the tradition is that after the initial entrance and reciting of who you are and why you're there, there's a time to just eat and talk. And that's what they do. They eat the good food. She talks about how the oysters that she got come from the son of the guy who normally makes them. And he's been really hard on his son, but Ronica thinks they might be better. And, you know, Kaolin agrees and they just have fun chats and they go from pleasantries about their gardens to hard, deep conversations about the loss of their, their recently deceased family members. And, you what's going on in life. And it's just spanning a whole range of topics as they eat and enjoy company. And it's talked about how this is also part of the ritual that there needs to be a separation between being friends and business, but also that there should be a friendly aspect because at one point they were all one people that they were just neighbors that would, join each other for dinner. And that's what this is kind of trying to represent.
0: Mm -hmm. And to say that they would remain neighbors and friends just kind of for the future as well, not just in representation of what they were in the past. Right. So it wasn't until everything was finished and the women were sharing the last cup of cooled tea in the pot that they turned to business. Calvin took a deep breath and began the formality of the discussion. Long ago, the Bingtown traders had discovered that this was one way to separate business from pleasure. The change in language did not negate the friendship the women shared, but it recognized that in matters of business, different rules applied and must be observed by all. It was a safeguard for a small society in which friends and relatives were also one's business contacts. The live ship Vivatia has quickened. Is she all that was promised? Despite her recent grief, Veronica felt a genuine smile rise onto her face. She is all that was promised, and freely do we acknowledge that. Then we are pleased to accept that which was promised for her. As we are pleased to tender it, Veronica took a breath and abruptly wished she had brought up the short measure earlier. But it would not have been correct nor fair to make that part of their friendship. Hard as it was for her to speak it, this was the correct time. She groped for words for this unusual situation. We acknowledge also that we owe you more at this time than we have been able to gather. Veronica forced herself to sit straight and meet the surprise in Colwyn's lavender eyes. We are a full two measures short. We would ask that this additional amount be carried until our next meeting, at which time I assure you we, will, we shall pay all that we owe then and the additional two measures plus one quarter measure of additional interest. A Long silence followed, and Ronica's relating that they knew that the full weight of Bingtown law gave her much leeway uh, in what she could demand. Calvin could demand as interest for Ronica's failed payment. Ronica's starting off low, typical bargaining thing, hoping at max she could settle at one and a half to one measure instead of the full two. That is kind of the max of that interest payment.
1: The two is her limit. Two is where she is the end of the rope. Absolutely no more than that can be asked of her, but she's hoping it won't get to that high.
0: Yep. But when Calwin did speak, the soft words chilled Ronica's blood. Blood or gold, the debt is owed, Calwin invoked. Ronica's heart skipped in her chest. Who could she mean? None of the answers that came to her pleased her. She tried to keep the quaver out of her voice and sternly reminded herself that a bargain was a bargain, but one could always try to better the terms. She took the least likely stance. "'I am but newly widowed,' she pointed out, and even if I had had the time to complete my mourning, I am scarcely suitable to the pledge. I am too old to bear healthy children to anyone, Kelwyn. It has been years since I even hoped I would bear another son for Ephraim. "'You have daughters,' Cowan pointed out carefully. "'One wed, one missing.' How can I promise you that which I do not have the possession of? Althea is missing? Veronica nodded, feeling again that stab of pain, not knowing the greatest dread that any seagoing family had for its members, that someday one would simply disappear, and those at home would never know what became of him. I must ask this, Cowan almost apologized. It is required of me, in duty to my family. Althea would not... Hide herself or flee to avoid the terms of our bargain? You have to ask that, and so I take no offense. Nonetheless, Ronica was hard hard put to keep the chill from her voice. Althea is bingtown to the bone. She would die rather than betray her family's word on this. Wherever she is, if she still lives, she is bound and knows she is bound. If you choose to call in our debt and she knows of it, she will come to answer for it stop there really quick to just kind of talk about this part so the blood or gold is owed and what colin is invoking that ronica is so chilled about is that she's not just gonna enforce we need to get paid back in our money blood was also part of the deal that the original vestrit a friend's grandmother put forward for this in payment if they could not pay in gold it was for a family member to go live with the rain wild family, the Festrues and become part of their family and be wed off to one of them because specifically the women are, they bear children to term much more easily than any of the rain wild women do. So it is very, very valuable for a family member from Bingtown to go to the rain wild for the rain wild families.
1: Right. Although in this instance, it feels A little bit tarnished by the idea that you would trade somebody's life for two gold payments. (laughs) Although maybe if she gave her Althea as she wanted originally, then they would not take any payment and that would be the the payment.
0: Yeah, I I feel like it would be more bargaining then at that point.
1: Right. Of like, how much do I get out of?
0: I think it's more Calwin kind of invoking that this is the original bargain one way or the other we're gonna get our payment. Right. You can't just trick me into thinking that this is just about gold. There are other ways too. You know, like right. you're like strapped.
1: <laughs> yeah. Strapped for cash. Just sell your daughter.
0: <laughs>
1: it's a call when the, like to the Rainwild
0: families, that's not really selling your family member, right? Right. To them. Super cherished. Like she was originally from Bingtown herself. Loves her her life, even if it's, you know, been hard in some areas. Right. But yeah, from Bingtown's perspective, selling.
1: <laughs> right. And I think, sure, even though whoever got sent would be cherished, there's still that aspect of how much does the person who goes want that? How is that different than slavery? You know, we have right. all these shades of people trading <laughs> that aren't some are a lot more heinous than others. But what about this? Does this not count? And apparently not because nobody really talks about it like slavery.
0: Because it was bound by the family's original bargain. Right. And that's what Ronica is kind of mad about. Colwyn asking, even though she recognized Colwyn is correct in asking if Elthea would stick to the bargain. Right. Kind of suggesting even that a Bingtown trader would go back on their word, go back on a bargain is pretty insulting. So asking like if Althea knew that she was going to get sold, would she run away and hide is like, of course she wouldn't. She's my daughter. It's a bargain. No,
1: but also but also she might <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel like Althea values her freedom and doesn't want to be sold off to the highest bidder. Right. And this would literally be that. So <laughs>
0: But for, in in general, I don't think they view it as slavery because they willingly, I say they, but the matriarch of this family who originally commissioned vivatia willingly gave this as terms for payment, right? So they are bound by their word. They're a very honor-bound society, especially since they are merchant-based. Right. Everything that they do comes down to reputation of how perfect the old traders are right so anything that would impugn their honor anything that would you know tarnish their legacies at all would be terrible so to stick by a bargain is not to sell somebody into slavery it's to stick by the terms of your bargain so that's that's my thoughts on and why there are differences even though to us not of this world reading it's like okay it's still kind of slavery (laughs) right
1: I suppose I don't know also like that bargain was made a really long time ago isn't there ever a time where you get to like go back over the contracts but also these are paid off yeah (laughs) and these are people that are really steeped in tradition they're still making sure that they're saying something from they're saying the exact right words right and following the little Act, Mm -hmm. I don't know, which is kind of a weird thought, but I guess tradition is tradition.
0: Calvin continues on and says that, well, even so, even if Althea would stick to it, which I knew that you would say, you still have, you know, granddaughters and grandsons. And I have two grandsons and a granddaughter, all approachable, marriageable age. And Ronica shakes her head and managed to snort a snort of forced laughter. My grandchildren are children still, not ready for marriage for years yet. The only one who is close to that age has sailed off with his father, and he has pledged to Saw's priesthood. It is a—it is as I have told you, I cannot pledge you that which I do not possess. A moment ago you were willing to pledge gold you did not yet possess, Cowan countered. Gold or blood, it is all a matter of time for the debt to be paid, Ronica. If we are willing to wait and let you set the time to pay it, perhaps you should be more willing to let us determine the coin of payment. Ronica picked up her teacup and found it empty. She stood hastily. Shall I put it on the kettle for more tea? So she's getting increasingly nervous because Calvin is pushing for, we need some sort of payment. If you want to defer your payment, let us choose what you pay in then. Because their family, they just lost her daughter. They want, As weird as it sounds, fresh blood to go into the family, you know? Cowan kind of declines the tea only if it'll boil swiftly. I don't want to be here around morning. People are far too ignorant nowadays, unmindful of the ancient bargains that bind us all. Got to be going pretty soon. Veronica sits down hastily. She's rattled. She says, of course. And she vindictively and abruptly wishes that Kefria were here. By all rights, Kefria should be here. The family fortunes were hers to control now, not Ronica's. Let her face something like this and see how well she would deal with it. A new chill went up Ronica's spine. She feared she knew how Kefria would deal with it. She'd turn it over to Kyle, who had no inkling of all that was at stake here. He had no concept of what the old covenants were. She doubted that even if he were told, he'd adhere to them. No, he'd see this as a cold business deal. He'd be like those those ones who had come to despise the rainwild folk, who only dealt with them for the profit involved, with no idea of all Bingtown owed to them. Kefria would surrender the fate of her whole family to Kyle, and he would treat it as if he were buying merchandise. In the moment of realizing that, Ronica crossed a line. It was not easily done, for it involved sacrificing her honor. But what was honor compared to protecting one's family and one's word? If deceptions must be made and lies must be told, then so be it. She could not recall that she had ever in her life decided so coldly to do what she had always perceived as wrong. But then again, she could not recall that she had ever faced so desperate a set of choices before. She wails inwardly for Ephraim, wishing and missing him, missing his backing and her his faith in her. And she lifts her eyes to meet Colwyn's gaze and says, Will you give me some leeway? She hesitated a moment, then set the stakes high in order to tempt the other woman. The next payment is due in midwinter, correct? I owe you 12 measures of gold for the regular payment. And again, Colwyn is nodding at both of these, and Veronica thinks back to this is, you know, Efren's trick. Get them agreeing to you to set things first. They will be more apt to agree with you to the bargain you set out next. And she says, and I will also owe you the two measures of gold I am short this time, plus an additional two measures of gold to make up for the lateness of the payment. So, pushes herself to the max of what she allowed herself before. Right. She smiles at Kelwyn and Kelwyn smiles in return. And Kelwyn says, and if you do not have it, we shall adhere to our family's original pledge. In blood or gold, the debt is owed. You shall forfeit a daughter or a grandchild to my family. There was no negotiating that. It had been pledged years ago by Efren's grandmother. No trader family would dream of going back on a given pledge of any ancestor. The nod she gave was a very stiff one, and the words she spoke, she said very carefully, binding the other woman with them. But if I have for you a full 16 measures of gold, then you will accept it as payment. And they shake hands.
1: Right. So the deal is struck.
0: Yes, the deal is struck.
1: I do want to go back a little bit. There are a couple of things I want to touch on. The first being that we do get to see a really good example here of why Efren really trusted Ronica. She's really good at this. She knows all the strategies. Sure, she's really nervous and doesn't want to lose she's betting the stake of her family. But she succeeds. She came in knowing what she could give and sure, she had to go to that extreme, but she already had planned for that. And I think it's really impressive that she's able to go through the shock because I don't think she was coming into this thinking that the blood would be called upon. But she took that in stride. Yeah. Well, she was able well, to make- relatively in I mean, yeah, <laughs> she <laughs> flattered a little bit there, but she ultimately came away with a deal that protected people. And I don't know. I just think that's really impressive of her. I also think that in this moment of her saying that she's going to lie if she has to, and she's going to stake her honor on something because that's what she has to do to save her family. I think we see the exact opposite of what we were just seeing with Wintro That Wintrow isn't willing to break his honor for anything. That that is what he has to hold on to. That is who he is. That is all of it. And here we have Veronica who thought she would be that way too, but this price is too high and she's willing to forsake that. Which I think is really cool. I don't know if cool is the right word, but she, you know, it's an interesting thing to see. Right. And then finally... I was really shocked by how immature Ronica is in her little monologue of woe is me and I wish I could make Kefria suffer for this. She has that whole that whole part where she just talks about how oh if Kefria was you know, I wish Kefria could be here to have to flounder and struggle with this. And then maybe she'd respect me is kind of the vibe I'm getting the unspoken part. But as her mom, it's kind of sad that she's like, I wish she had to struggle through this instead of me, instead of being like, wow, I'm really glad that I could save Kefria from this struggle.
0: Then again, we aren't parents, so we don't know.
1: (laughs) I guess, but like, I don't know. It just feels very me. I-, I wouldn't think that about you. I wouldn't be like, oh, I wish Luke was the one here.
0: I mean, I do that when I'm doing dishes sometimes. I wish Emma would have to go through doing these dishes, <laughs> not me.
1: <laughs> yeah, when it's not my turn. But that's a little bit different than, like, oh, I wish Emma would have to. Yeah, we also don't have to.
0: You know, we're, not debt. In, we're not in debt for three <laughs> <laughs> generations for something.
1: Right. I don't know. It just feels like I don't I don't have a child, but I have lots of other relationships and I can't think of a single one where I'd be wishing that on them. Even if things were strained between us. Right. So I don't know. It just felt very immature. It felt like something Althea would do rather than her mother. But maybe it just points to the fact that they're more alike than either of them realize.
0: And so through the formality of Kelowyn getting ready to head out, them shaking hands, getting her gloves and her veil back on and everything like that, all the while Ronica describing her um, with terms that we don't really know because this is our first time meeting a rainwild trader, like waddles of flesh, lumps, misshapen hands, lavender eyes, we can tell that there is some sort of horror coursing through Ronica the thought of a family member going to the Rainwilds. Right. And Cowan breaks uh, the formal tradition and speaks to her. She says, It would not be so ill a fate as many think it, Ronica. Any Vestrid who joined our household I would treasure as I have treasured our friendship. I was born in Bingtown, you know, and if I am no longer a woman that a man of your folk... "'could look upon without shuddering. "'Know that I have not been unhappy. "'I have had a husband who treasured me "'and born a child, "'and see her bear three healthy grandchildren to me, "'this flesh, the deformities. "'Other women who stay in Bingtown "'perhaps pay a higher price for smooth skin "'and eyes and hair of normal hues. "'If all does not go as you pray it will, "'if next winter I take from you one of your blood, "'know that he or she will be cherished and loved.' as much because that one comes of honorable stock and is a true vestrate as because of our fresh blood he or she would bring to our folk. Ronica thanks Calwyn but is terrified of that prospect. And it takes a couple moments before Calwin turns away and walks and Ronica fervently hopes and prays to Saw that she would never stand watching them walk away with one of her own into the darkness.
1: Right. So there is still that friendship there. I do kind of wonder if this hurts the friendship a little bit that Ronica is so adamantly against her family going to the Rainwilds. And I also think it's really interesting that both of these women who are doing this deal are from families that aren't originally part of the deal. Callan married into this family from a Bingtown Trader family. And Ronica also married into the Vestret family. Yeah. So, I don't know. I find that really interesting.
0: <laughs> well, we move on in the same house to Kefria and Kyle. <laughs> he has come to the house for the last night before he sails out. He and Kefria are laying in bed And it is a wonderful evening, but Kefria has to interrupt it and is dreading doing so to speak about Malta.
1: Basically, she's thinking about how, even though this is probably going to ruin the mood because they're just really enjoying each other's company after spending an intimate night together. And now they're just laying in bed with the cool summer breeze brushing against them. She still knows that once he leaves, she still has to deal with Malta and that Malta cannot be allowed to be presented as a woman. And so she has to let him know, like, this is something he clearly just doesn't know about. And so she has to tell him that it's wrong because she doesn't want to go against his wishes and go behind his back when he's not there because she feels like that would hurt the trust that they have built over the years.
0: Of course, Kyle does not want to speak about it. He knows that he has to wake up in a few hours and go to the ship. And he's just like, please just let it go in peace. And she's like, we haven't the luxury of that. She wants, Kefria wants them to be a united front with a united decision to have that. She says to him, like, I have to deal with Malta doing all this. So Kyle comes in with the the rebuttal. So, I should take back my promise to her simply so you won't be squabbling with her? Kefria, what will she think of me? Is this really so great a difficulty as you are making it out to be? Let her go to the other one. Let her go to the one gathering in a pretty dress. That's all it is. No. It took all her courage to contradict him directly, but he didn't know what he was talking about, she told herself frantically. He he didn't understand and she'd left it too late to explain it all to him in one night. She had to make him give in to her just this once. It's far more than dancing with a man in a pretty dress. She's having dance lessons from Rach. I want to tell her that she must be content with that for now, that she must spend at least a year preparing to be seen as a woman in Bingtown society before she can go out as one. And I want to tell her that you and I are united in this, that you thought it over and changed your mind about letting her go. But I didn't, Kyle pointed out stubbornly. I think you are making much of a small thing, and I don't say this to hurt you, but because I see it more and more in you. I think you simply do not wish to give up any control of Malta, that you wish to keep her a little girl at your side. I sense it almost as a jealousy in you, dear, that she vies for my attention as well as the attention of young men. I've seen it before. No mother wishes to be eclipsed by her daughter. A grown daughter must always be a reminder to a woman that she is not young anymore, But I think it is unworthy of you, Kefria. Let your daughter grow up and be both an ornament and a credit to you. You cannot keep her in short skirts and plaited hair forever. Gross. Yeah, gross. I mean, it's similar stuff that we've been talking about before about his attitude. And Kefria just wants a united front of just delay it, you know, just delay it a little bit.
1: It's just so frustrating because Kyle has this way of like... I couldn't possibly go back on my word, but you're a woman, so your word doesn't really matter. And <laughs> yeah. also, like, what would my daughter think of me if I told her that I had thought something through and decided that I actually had acted rashly, like a good person, how you should be teaching people to act, and instead says, no, I gotta double down on this. It's not that big of a deal. Honestly, I feel like you're just jealous that our daughter is getting my attention and also wants the attention of men. And it's like, ugh gross ew ew no mother at least no mother should be jealous (laughs) or is jealous of their daughter getting attention from their husband that like yeah you should be giving your daughter attention because she's your kid like your child that you helped create you should give her attention that's not a mom wouldn't be jealous of a normal healthy relationship like Oh, she's getting more attention from my husband than I am. Like, I don't know. Just the way he says it is so yucky and gross of like, you're just mad. I'm seeing her as a woman now. It's like, ew, she's your daughter. Why are you seeing her like that? <laughs> I don't know. Ugh. I hate it. I I don't know. I don't know how to look at that and not think it's gross. And
0: Kefria is furious and has an affronted silence and Kyle takes it for something else. And Switches the conversation towards Wintrow saying we should be grateful she's so unlike Wintrow look at him He not only looks and sounds like a boy, but longs to continue being one And relates the story about him not Receiving or retrieving his shirt Basically being shirtless on deck getting sunburned because he refuses to to go up the mast and get it I called him to my chamber and tried to explain to him privately that if he did not go up after them the rest of the crew would think of him a coward. He claimed it was not fear that kept him going after his shirt, but dignity, standing there like a righteous little prig of a preacher. And he tried to make some moral point of it, that it was neither courage nor cowardice, but that he would not risk himself for their amusement. I told him that there was very little risk to it, but he did not heed what he'd been taught. And again, he came back to me with some cant about no man should put another man, even to a small risk, simply for his own adjo- amusement. Finally, I lost patience with him and called Torg and told him to see that boy up the mast and get his shirt back. I fear he lost a great deal of the crew's respect over that. Why do you allow your crew to play boys' pranks when they ought to be about their work, Kefria demanded. Her heart bled for Wintrow, even as she fervently wished her son had simply gone after his own shirt. If he'd but risen to their challenge, they would have seen him as one of their own. Now they would see him as an outsider to torment. She knew it instinctively and wondered that he had not. And Kyle, again, says, you fair ruined the, the boy sending him off to be a priest, almost satisfied as he said this. And she realizes that he changed the topic quite soundly and then shifts it or tries to shift it back to Malta.
1: Right. But I do also want to point out that in this telling, we see that Kyle is actively working against his son, that he could have continued to leave it be there's no reason why he had to force Wintro to go up there and get his shirt. He could have just said, okay, fine. You want to be sunburnt, be sunburnt and left it. But instead he forced Wintro to go up there with the second mate Torg, who is the tormentor and thus made his son lose more dignity. And I feel like honestly, that's a horrible thing to do as a captain and a father. <laughs> and Ugh, the fact that he's so smug that they're talking about Wintro now and can overlook the fact that she is kind of criticizing his captaining skills, which also very valid point to bring up, Kefria. Why is he allowing all these silly pranks to go on if there's work to be done? Hmm. Interesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she switches it back to Malta, though, saying... As you have insisted that only you know the correct way to raise our son in the ways of men, perhaps you should concede that only a woman can know the best way to guide Malta into womanhood. Even in the darkness she could see the surprise that crossed his face at the tartness of her tone. It was, she suddenly knew, the wrong way to approach him if she wanted to win him to her side. But the words had been said, and she was suddenly too angry to take them back, too angry to try to control and coax him into her way of thinking. If you were a different type of woman, I might concede the right of that, he said coldly. But I recall you as you were when you were a girl. And your own mother kept you tethered to her skirts, much as you seek to restrain Malta. Consider how long it took me to awaken you to a woman's feelings. Not all men have that patience. I would not see Malta grow up as backward and shy as you were. The cruelty of his words took her breath away. Their slow courtship. Her deliciously gradual hope and then certainty of Kyle's interest in her were some of her sweetest memories. He had snatched that away in a moment, turned her months of shy anticipation into some exercise of bored patience on his part, made his awakening of her feelings an educational service he had performed for her. She turned her head and stared at this sudden stranger in her bed. She wanted to deny that he had ever spoken such words, wanted to pretend that they did not truly reflect his feelings, but had been said out of some kind of spite. Coldness welled up from within her now. Spite words were true. Did did it not come to the same thing? He was not the man she had always believed him to be. All these years she had been married to a fantasy, not a real person. She goes on to say that, Her creation of a man who was loving and caring and came home in between these things was just a fantasy that she put Kyle's face on. Just someone that she conjured in her mind. And she had always been able to pretend that he was tired from his voyages. They had been long and hard and they were simply getting readjusted to one another And despite all of the things that he had said and done in the weeks since her father's death, she had continued to treat him and react to him as if he were the man she had created in her mind. The truth was that he had never been the romantic figure her fancies had made him. He was just a man like any other man. No, he was stupider than most. He was stupid enough to think she had to obey him. Even when she knew better, even when he was not around to oppose her— Realizing this was like opening her eyes to the sun's rising. How had it never occurred to her before?
1: So I think this is really important because it kind of shows that Althea saw to the truth of the matter before anybody else. That she knew who Kyle was and what he was after. And he's kind of made it clear in my mind here that maybe he did single Kefria out to be able to get a live ship. The way he talks about her, that's not how you talk about somebody you love and
0: respect. Yeah, possibly.
1: She's backwards and shy. It's just... Ugh.
0: <laughs>
1: also, I feel so bad for Kefria because not only does she have to deal with the grief of losing a parent, but now she's realizing that her whole life has been a lie and there's a collapsing of this sense of security that she's always had, partly because her father's gone, but also partly because she's realizing who it is that she actually married. And should she have been able to recognize that sooner? Sure, maybe. But there are a lot of things that get in the way. And like she said, they weren't together very often. And when they were, it was in between him being gone for months at a time.
0: Mind is very powerful. Right. It sees what it wants it to see.
1: Yeah, and it's really easy to brush off something as, oh, well, that's not how he normally is whenever you're only seeing him for two weeks and you don't want to ruin the mood. So it was
0: the honeymoon phase, and then he was gone sailing, and she just kept that in his mind like, oh, it's he was the same as the honeymoon seducing me stage. But in this instance, realized that no, I was really bored and I hated that you were so shy and backwards then. I was never the person you thought I was.
1: Right. Which is horrible. It's just horrible. Like not, and not just any guy would be patient enough to deal with you. Um, no, screw you, Kyle, because there are plenty of guys who would be happy to date her and be patient. (laughs) Like to insist, insinuate that he's the only person that's, that was kind enough to do that. And she should be thankful to him. Ugh. I don't know.
0: But also good for her for finally realizing that, while well, I don't have to obey him while he's away. But yeah. also very sad that this is the first time it's kind of occurring to her.
1: Right. But <laughs> he's not in charge of her.
0: Yeah. But Kyle does recognize that maybe he pushes her a little too far there and tries to wrap her in a hug, comfort her and says, don't be sulky. Come here. Not on my last night at home. Trust me. Fall goes well. Uh, "'On this voyage, I'll be able to stay at home for a while next time we dock. "'I'll be here to take all of this off your shoulders. "'Malta, Selden, the ship, the holdings. "'I'll put all in order and run them as they should have always been run. "'You have always been shy and backward. "'I, couldn't, I should not say that to you as if it were a thing you could change in yourself. "'I just want to let you know that I n- know how hard you have tried to manage things in spite of that.' If anyone is at fault, it is I to have the, let these concerns have been your task all these years. And she is sitting there just numb, basically. She let him draw uh, her near, but the promises he had just made to re- reassure her and said echoed in her mind like a threat. So she's finally kind of coming around and seeing it the way that Ronica is seeing it now, too, that him coming back is not a good thing. For the family, because his threat is, I will run it how it always should have been run. You have always been shy and backwards. This is him trying to placate her. You have always been shy and backwards, but it's my fault for letting you take responsibility for things.
1: Right. And like in what world is calling your wife shy and backwards a nice thing? Why is he doubling down on that? (laughs) Instead of being like, oh, you know, that's not I what I meant.
0: You know, I shouldn't have called you dumb. You are dumb and always have been, but that's not your fault. Right. So I'll take everything off of you. <laughs> like,
1: excuse me, what, sir? <laughs> it's just, ugh. I, it's so hard because how do you, like, deal with someone like that? Especially at this point in her life. Like, what is there to do at this point? Even, even if she just goes along you know for now and then as soon as he's gone she takes over then what he's going to come back his plan if he were to succeed is to eventually come back and take over so what do you do in a society where he owns everything you've given him control of the boat i don't think she is allowed to take it back now
0: uh i don't know if she's legally you know done that she probably still has the legal writings that she is the the holder but it's like seated over, like yeah, Kyle will captain, you know.
1: I guess, I don't know. It just, yeah. <laughs> I just feel bad for her because it's pretty late. I mean, thankfully, I all I'm thinking about is like, well, thankfully we know that she is gonna, or that Kyle won't be coming home, so she doesn't really have to deal with it. But I do just think about like, if we didn't know that, ugh, what a horrible reality.
0: Right. Well, she has to grow a spine.
1: That's tr- I guess. <laughs> and just yeah. say no.
0: Well, we move on to Ronica, who has been sleeping and kind of wakes up and thinks of herself as an old woman now. She's just kind of hazy, not really resting, sleeping in fits, you know, and just kind of bleary <laughs> is the best word I can describe it right now. Right. She hears somebody say mother, a whisper. And immediately thinks of, you know, her, her young boys and says, Yes, dear, mother's here. She does not open her eyes. She knew these voices, had known them for years. Her little sons still sometimes came to call to her in the darkness. Painful as such fancies were, she would not open her eyes and disperse them. Even they have sharp edges, it is nice to think on happier times. And then the voice again, Mother, I've come to ask for your help. And she realizes it's Althea at the window. Althea leaned on the sill. Oh, thanks, Sa, you're safe. And she, Ronica, gets to her feet, starts to head towards the window, but Althea kind of backs up a little bit and says, if you call Kyle, I'll never come back again. Ronica came to the window and says, I wasn't even thinking of calling Kyle. Come back, we have to talk. Everything's gone wrong. Nothing's turned out the way it was supposed to. That's hardly news, Althea muttered darkly. (laughs) Which, yeah. Right. She ventured closer to the window. Ronica met her gaze, and for an instant, she looked down into naked hurt. Then Althea looked away from her. Mother, maybe I'm a fool to ask this, but I have to. I have to know before I begin. Do you recall what Kyle said when the last time we were all together? Her daughter's voice was strangely urgent. So here Althea is coming to get her second witness to say that, yes, she heard that Kyle swore to saw that he would give over the ship if she had a uh, a worthy captain recommend her,
1: right, and we do know that she is only hopeful of this because she knows her mother tried to reach her through the vivacia, mm-hmm. and so she's this is why she sort of has a little bit of hope that maybe her mom will do the right thing, and that's why she's come, and poor Ronica is really struggling with all the changes. Like as much as this is kind of the bed of her own making that she is now lying in, she is just a human who made human mistakes and also is dealing with the grief and the loss of her husband and now her, her family splintering, which she didn't expect. Yeah, definitely. And that would be really hard to deal with. So I, like as much as I am kind of in the camp of like, well, Radhika, you get what you get. I still do feel bad for her in this moment of like, oh, I finally get my daughter back. I'm glad she's safe. We need to talk so we can strategize and plan. And then
0: Althea doesn't even give one little finger to help her up or like <laughs> any any little olive branch twig or anything like that. Just No, it's just yeah.
1: at the window and is like, if you tell Kyle, I'm going to leave and never come back. And what? it's very defensive, which I mean, fair enough on her end.
0: Yeah. Well, not even that. She just gets down to her business of what Althea wants and then is gone. Is gone and leaves after that. And so, yeah. Ronica's just like, yeah, Kyle said a great many things. What do you mean? What are you talking which about? Which part? Yeah. And Ronica does admit that, yeah, she, I, I doubt he meant that, but I did hear that. It's just his way to throw such things about when he is angry. And Althea presses again, like she pressed Wintrow. And Veronica says, yes, yes, I remember he said that. Althea, we have much more important things to discuss than this. Please, come in. Come back home. We need to No, nothing is more important than what I just asked you. Mother, I've never known you to lie, not when it was important. The time will come when I'm counting on you to tell the truth. Incredibly, her daughter was walking away, speaking over her shoulder as she went. For one frightening instant, she looked so like her father as a young man. She wore the striped shirt and black trousers of a sailor on shore. She even walked as she as he had that roll to her gate and the long, dark queue of hair down her back. And Ronica is, like you said, just kind of lost at this. She's like, my daughter's walking away. I just found out she's safe. I want to talk to her. She asks me one question and then walks away. She jumps out of her window, trying to follow her, saying, wait.
1: Right. And I... I really feel for both sides here, right? Like on Althea's end, there's no reason to stay and chat with her mother. Whatever's going on is her mother's deal that she stopped caring about that whenever her mom took everything from her. And there's still too much hurt for her to help or to want to care But also it is kind of in Althea's nature to not really care about what's going on on land. Of course, the only thing she cares about is her ship because that's the only thing she deems important. So I'm not fully surprised. It is a little sad that she's like, of course, nothing's more important than my ship instead of thinking about all the other damage Kyle could have done and maybe helping her mom in that. And then I also feel for Ronica who just wants her daughter back and is thinking, Oh, here's my chance. I'll explain everything to her. Maybe she has insight. I'm going to bring her in. And Delthea wants no part. And she has to watch her daughter walk away. And again, that's a bed that she made. She now has to lie in, but I don't know. It's hard for both sides. I feel for both of them.
0: So this is the night talk that you were talking about a few episodes ago that they have, I didn't remember this section, but also it's not as much of a conversation as I was hoping
1: for. No, I know. I wish it was more. I want them to talk it out.
0: <laughs> this is a Robin Hobb book. That's not going to happen.
1: <laughs> True. That'll just be misunderstandings.
0: <laughs> well, our last little scene is heading back to the serpents.
1: Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? My problem with the serpents is the descriptors are really gross sounding to me. Like how they slither around each other and do little like dances in the water. I don't know. Like I, I like worms. Like I think worms are cool, but like it's too wormy. (laughs) I don't know. Just
0: picture eels doing it. Like, uh, Oh,
1: what
0: are, what are Ursula's eels names?
1: Flotsam and Jetsam. Yeah.
0: Flotsam and Jetsam. Just picturing them.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I even eels aren't that bad most of the time. I don't know. What? It's just, Oof. I guess eels aren't like the cartoon eels aren't that bad. It's well, like yeah. real eels, I guess, are gross. But I, a tangle of them, I hate the word tangle to describe anything. It makes me think of rat kings. Yeah. And, uh, like their tails, rat tails. I think that's what the deal is. I'm thinking rat tails in my mind hmm. and something about that grosses me out. I like rats, but like their tails in general are I don't gross.
0: know how you like rats either. though. Rats and worms. They're cute.
1: <laughs> They're cute.
0: <laughs> All right. Anyways, <laughs> we have uh, Caesarea is confronting Malkin and Trevor is pretty mad that The rest of the Tangle has been talking behind their backs, basically, and the rest of the Tangle has propped up Caesarea as the one to confront Malkin. If one had a doubt, why had not that one come to speak of it to Malkin himself rather than sharing the poisonous idea with the others? Now they were all crazed with it as if they had partaken tainted meat. The foolishness was most strong in Caesarea, for he whipped himself into position to challenge Malkin. His orange mane was already erect and toxic. And basically the whole thing is you lead us awry. Uh, the plenty is growing, the ocean is growing shallower and warmer. The salts of it more strange. Prey is scarce here. And you give us scant time to feed. We're always moving. I send no, sent no other tangles. And no others have come this way because of that. You lead us not to rebirth, but to death. And Shriver is all... All in on Mulkin is like, I will defend him if the whole Tangle attacks him. He's not going to fight alone sort of thing. Right. I will fight for my mans.
1: <laughs> and
0: uh, Mulkin is not here to fight either.
1: He's kind of lazy, being lazy in his creepy little circles. <laughs> <laughs> but I also want to point out that Shriever is, in this moment, m- making me think a lot of how Wintro talks. This very Saw priesthood of Schriever. The whole, you shouldn't gossip behind somebody's back. You should talk <laughs> to them up front about something. That's and fair. you have to trust in the way. And like Malkin slash Saw knows the way and you can't question it. Like we can wonder, but you just have to keep following the path. <laughs> it just feels very connected. I don't know. Something yeah. about this reading this time made me think like, huh. Nice feels, little
0: parallel there.
1: Yeah. Feels very priesty.
0: But Mulkin before the whole tangle is changing Caesarea's challenge into a graceful dance because he lazily winds through and around Caesarea and makes Caesarea kind of follow him. So they're all kind of, or both of them are kind of intertwining and, and weaving around. And it's not so much as a one one versus one face-off here. It's kind of a dance. And he says, If you scent no other tangle, it is because I follow the sense of those who have passed here an age ago. But if you open wide your gills, you would scent others, and not so far ahead of us. You fear the warmth of this plenty, and yet you are among the first who protested when I led you from warmth to coolness. You taste the strangeness of the salts and think we have gone awry, foolish serpent. If all were familiar, then we would be swimming back into yesterday. Follow me, and do not doubt any longer, for I lead you not into your own familiar yesterday, but into tomorrow, and the yesterday of your ancestors. Doubt no longer, but swallow my truth. And since... Malkin was so intertwined and close to Caesarea when he sprays his toxins. Caesarea can't help but breathe that in, which carries, as we know, yes, toxins and poisons and things like that to stun people, but also a lot of the memories and the feelings that Malkin carries. Right. So Caesarea is breathing that in and kind of stunned and, and drifting there, but is also experiencing very similar to what Shriver did a few chapters ago as well. And fully is kind of believing in it or comes to believe in that but before that realization can hit there is uh, above okay so this word is very strangely yet even as he bore up the one who would have denied him caesarea the tangle cried out in unease for above the plenty and yet in it and below the lack and yet in it a great darkness moved Its shadow passed over them soundlessly, save for the rush of its finless body. So it's a slaver ship coming through here. It is both in and out of the ocean and the sky. And when the rest of the Tangle would have fled back into the depths, Malkin upheld Caesarea and pursued that shape, the slave ship, saying, Come, follow, follow without fear. I promise you both food and rebirth when the time for the gathering is upon us. Shriver instantly kind of darts after Malkin here as he's pursuing this slave ship. And she's watching the first shivering of awareness come back to Caesarea and marked how gently he parted himself from Malkin. "'I saw this,' he called to the others, who still lagged and hesitated. "'This is right. Malkin is right. I have seen this in his memories, and now we live it again. Come, come!' At that acknowledgement, there came forth from the sh- the shape food." Pray that neither struggled nor swam, but drifted down to be seized and consumed by all. We shall not starve, Malkin assured his followers quietly, nor shall we need to delay our journey for fishing. Set aside your doubts and reach for your deepest memories. Follow. So that kind of implies that slave ships have been a thing, at least in the last turning before the great cataclysm. When uh, serpents also did this. Remember, they're a fairly recent thing as of right now because of the pirates. Pirates kind of came about uh, because of the slavers. Right. And it feels like that is a necessary thing for the dragons to come back almost. Kind of find their way. These are the waters where the pirates are, where the slavers are. So this is where the serpents have to be which is interesting thought. I don't think I had the first time through this.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely is a really interesting idea that slavery has been around long enough for there to be memories for them to call upon. I also do wonder, though, what that means about the old elderly places. Because wouldn't that imply then that a lot of the slave ships were going towards Elderling cities? Possibly. If they know to follow the slave ships to where they're going,
0: there was mentioned before that uh, that there are different Elderling societies and they also warred against one another quite often. Fair. Elderlings are not you know better than humans because they, they are humans basically. Right.
1: They just live a little longer. Yeah. Interesting. No, just like a really interesting thought, like you said. And Mm -hmm. also, it makes me wonder about the current serpents that are kind of more mindless animalistic that follow slavers. And I wonder if maybe they followed them originally thinking, oh, this is my way home and just...
0: Stayed because of the food. Right. lost the trail, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of a sad thought.
0: Well, that's the end of this chapter. It's a very long one. A lot of different scenes, a lot of things to discuss, even though a lot of, as you said before, Emma, a lot of nothing happens.
1: Yeah, it feels like there nothing really happens, but there's still a lot of it.
0: <laughs> this is, I think, is going to be our longest episode of this whole book so far. So yeah, <laughs> a Exciting. lot of nothing, but a lot to talk about. <laughs> our first introduction to the Rainwild Traders as well. Yes. And a little bit more of a hint at the covenant, at least for new readers through that they have to, uh, to make live ships, you know, and and it's a glimpse into the value that they hold.
1: And a glimpse into what it is that they're hiding.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh. They're deformed in some way. Yeah. Or altered by, uh, by the Rain Wilds, because Cowan was from Bingtown originally.
1: Yeah. So although it's pretty sick that she got violet eyes.
0: <laughs> and they can kind of see in the dark a little bit.
1: Uh yeah, pretty cool superpower. I mean, sure, you're not pretty anymore. You but don't live you sp- as long. And you don't live as long. And also there's a potential to die in childbirth, but hey. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week as we discuss chapter 15 here. If you have thoughts about any of this, please, please, please let us know. You can email us at isfitshappy at com, or you can message us directly on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or at isfitshappy on all three of those as well.
1: We always look forward to hearing what you guys have to say.